For the foreseeable future, I think the reality is we are surfing. We're going to want to make sure we can position ourselves and understand enough of the surf so that, you know, we're not in the impact zone and we don't get crushed by tidal waves. But at the same time, we're going to have to push ourselves into uncomfortable spaces. And that's what the barrel, when you're in, you're getting barreled in a wave, that's what it is. It's equally exciting and frightening. It's the fear of knowing the wrong move. So you've got to stay fluid. You've got to improvise. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. Ever since I was a child, I was curious about so many things. I spent hours in the garage at science fairs, sifting through popular science, popular mechanics, and pretty much any journal I could get my hands on, exploring and discovering how things work from transportation and AI to just about anything you can put in your home, office, or pocket. On this show, you'll hear from the innovators themselves as they tell their stories of how they brought those visions to life. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. It's not exactly breaking news that the world as we know it is changing. Just about every day, we experience the effects of these changes. 60 years ago, the birth of the highway system changed how we design our cities and how we travel from home to work. Television changed the way we got our information, but it also changed how we entertained ourselves. Today, the digital revolution is having similar effects on society. So are things like climate change and more specifically, the COVID-19 pandemic. My guest today is an expert on both change and how we respond to change. Eric Pellon Bignell is the author of Surfing Rogue Waves, a book written for and about the constantly evolving world that we're living in. He's a rare academic who was able to turn a PhD thesis into a best-selling manuscript. Though he's an engineer by trade, he's not a guest on this podcast because he's developed a cool new product or a solution to the world's most pressing problems. Nope. I wanted to get Eric's unique perspective on the tremendous rate of disruption we've experienced over the last couple of decades, and we'll continue to see for the foreseeable future. And I swear, I could have chatted with him all day. This was one of the most powerful and enlightening conversations I've had in a long time. So let's hit the waves with Eric. Try thinking about all the advancements being made in areas like artificial intelligence, robotics, and automation. Now combine those with the effects of things like climate change and the increasing connectedness of communities and cultures around the world. It's a lot to process. Eric calls himself a pragmatic futurist. He says that in the next few years, we will experience more disruption than humanity saw over the last century. So why does change still seem to creep up on us, even though we know it's happening? This is the central theme of surfing rogue waves, which almost overnight turned Eric into a respected thought leader on the subject of change and disruption. One of the 
constant themes I had my whole life that led me down this road was we always never seem to notice change until after it happens. It's very strange, right? But we just, we wake up in this world now and it's not the Jetsons world, but most of us talk to Alexa or Google in our house. I don't remember noticing that change or thinking one day that was going to happen and it's just here. But the part that keeps me up is we don't notice this change now. And are we okay with what's going to end up happening? Because right now, a lot of this is being run and driven by companies, which I'm not for or against. But I'm saying if all these developments for the good of humanity is being run by ruthless quarterly revenue reports, we might want to think about a few of that because we can't decouple them, right? We're surfing. You can have nice long cutbacks and slow yourself down in a wave, but there's no brakes on a wave. So all this amplification in the world, whether it's systematic, whether it's cultural or whether it's technological, we've got this robust pipeline of disruption coming. One might not make it. The other one might. We won't time them perfectly, but it's going to make for, you know, some of the craziest surfing conditions we've ever faced. Eric knows a bit about surfing conditions, but he came to surfing much later in life. His upbringing couldn't have been further removed from sandy beaches and rolling waves. He was born outside of Toronto in a French-speaking Canadian family. His parents are both academics themselves, but his early years were dominated by his love of sports, specifically hockey and American football. Eric played football for three years in college before deciding to finally settle down and concentrate on academics. He was an engineering major, but never quite knew how he wanted to apply it after graduation. So is that PhD always in the back of your mind that someday I'm going to get a PhD as well? Or is that kind of programmed in the DNA? Yeah, I don't know. I know it wasn't in the back of my mind. I'm not sure really how I ended up there. I think I had this, you know, I, I loved athletics. I really did love sports. I think a lot of this was just this pursuit of the competitiveness nature and the wanting to do more. And I, I did love, you know, in sports in general, there's a lot of unknown, right? It's creative and you're working through doing that. And as you get older, unfortunately, the reality of being an athlete for the rest of your life starts to fade slightly. And then I really started to transition more of that into, I guess, the pursuit of continuing to want to learn more and think more, right? And, and education took me that way. Did a start up on my own and kind of did my master's, which didn't exactly get me to where I wanted to be. And somehow I stumbled into this dissertation and went through that and I think they were all great and they all kind of got me next steps and they always kind of left me with almost more questions than you started with sometimes. So I, I feel like that natural curiosity is kind of what got me into where the PhD, for example, whereas my dad was just a lot smarter and structured and probably had that all figured out in his head. <laughs> so what were you like in the classroom and what was your favorite subject? Yeah, I transcended quite a bit. I would say I started in an all French school. I would say when I, I moved over to an English high school and even university, English not being my first language, I struggled a bit more with, it was a lot more work for me. It was a lot harder to, I hadn't grown up, you know, reading English my whole life. I hadn't had English classes right all the way up and through to high school. I didn't really understand, you know, subordinate clauses and how to identify them in sentences and all this kind of fun stuff. But maths and sciences for me were very much the same, almost regardless of, of language. It's a bit of a language on its own. So I very much leaned that way and leaned into the math and sciences. And I, I think I did better because I was probably more comfortable in maths and sciences at the time. And very much probably not someone who would have been your stereotypical engineer. And I got some great advice really from my dad making that step was you can always go be an engineer and then decide to go into business later. It's a lot harder if you follow a business degree and you decide you want to be an engineer to go back and 
going to engineering later. So, you know, he positioned and sold me on that. And at the time, for the wrong reasons, and a high school kid, they're like, engineering's have some of the, you know, the best salaries coming out of school. So I was like, well, great, I'm sold. I'll, I'll do engineering. So were you doing football and hockey in college too competitively? I played football there. And then hockey at that point, I had probably succumbed to what my dad spent a lot of my life telling me, you know, which growing up playing competitive hockey and, and all the way, you know, you can do it into your juniors in Canada and it's your life almost. And my dad and I used to have this funny argument where he would say, well, you know, you really remember you're only doing all this to be a good beer league hockey player one day, you know? And at the time I remember thinking, all right, well, when I make it to the NHL, I'm not paying you anything. But in the house, it was like, if you want to go to practice, you want to go to the game, you're getting A's and your schoolwork's always done or you're not doing it. And for me, that's what got me there. That's a future in the back pocket. You can always go back to hockey, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. And then I did, I did the football, which is very much almost a full-time degree in school for, you know, anyone who's kind of gone through it, right? This morning stand up, there's film that starts early in the afternoon. There's the actual practice you're eating with the team after, you know, you're studying new plays. And I fought that a lot with, in my profs, at least in my undergrad, they weren't all, they were very academic, I should say. So in my opinion, they weren't very great. You know, they were like, well, sorry, the labs go till five or five 30. So if you're not at the lab, you can't get the mark and, you know, and, you, and I'm sitting here going, but if I miss the film, for this week, I also can't, you know what I mean? I'm not going to be able to start and play football. So I had a lot of trouble managing both of them, I think, so much so. And I'm I'm very, I want to do it right or, or almost not do it right. I hate the mediocre or doing a bunch of things okay. So after my third year, I actually stopped playing football and just focused on school. After college, Eric went to work for a firm called PV Labs, where he worked on stabilized remote camera heads. The kind you find fastened to police helicopters or military vehicles. Later, he and a friend launched a startup of their own making, a chewing gum that had the same effect as an energy drink. The market was packed with energy drink startups at the time. Big players like Coca-Cola and Pepsi were buying them up left and right. Eric and his partner were hoping for a similar harvest, only it never came. So what did you learn from that experience? The entrepreneurship part? Yeah. What I'll, I guess I'll call true entrepreneurship isn't as glorious as how we market entrepreneurship to be. So good and bad, but I think we highlight a lot of the the positives and the greats. And, and there are some greats of it. And I think you hear hard work and long nights and it's okay if you're doing what you love. And it is, but you're doing really everything, right? All the things you hate, you're also doing that in an early stage real startup. And so I think it was a really great sobering love and hate relationship because as a young kid coming out of school like everyone else oh yeah i want to be an entrepreneur entrepreneurs are the coolest things right you know they have, have great ideas they do whatever they want they're their own boss and there's very much pros and cons i think to your own boss but for me more importantly was it taught me the front end of the business so i didn't know anything about retail i didn't know anything about sales i didn't know how to sell into convenience stores right or you know health chains i didn't know any of that stuff and I had to just go figure it out. So I came out of there with two years of a real, I probably even had a chip on my shoulder of did my MBA the hard knocks way, but it sounds glorious. And, you know, everyone looks at this big, great meeting and you got in Walgreens and a lot of that is scrappier than you think, right? It's strange timing of looking up and constantly trying to be in different places at the right time until you eventually kind of run into that. Eric did get his MBA while trying to get his energy gum startup off the ground. And he later decided to go back for his PhD. 
He enrolled in the Indiana Institute of Technology, where he studied philosophy and started circling around the ideas that would become the basis for his thesis and eventually his book. Oddly enough, his time at IIT was indirectly responsible for him discovering surfing. So the surfing is and in here and while I was finishing my dissertation and I, and I was fortunate and again, which is why I, I picked Indiana as well to do it is having flexible profs. So the, the, the company I joined originally was based out of Dallas, but I managed kind of the Western Southern US and really my time out West. And I went on after that to open up Australia. That's really where I'd say the love for surfing I loved board sports always. I was always a snowboarder, you know, and in a lake landlocked wakeboarder growing up. So I'd love that. I just being landlocked, I didn't have a whole ton of opportunity to do that. And I don't know, somehow the ice pads of hockey and the some of my love for frozen mountains, they all end up in the same place, which is the oceans. And I, I felt like I, uh, you know, I very much went there and I, I'm a terrible surfer, but I love to surf. You know, I'm probably up for 10 seconds and it feels like two minutes and, you know, that's great. But I kind of fell in love with it there. And then as I was working through, you know, life experiences in my dissertation, there's this kind of constant parallel that I was I was starting to pull together between really surfing in life and surfing in business. So point of clarity, was your PhD completed by the time you took the position in Australia? No, it was completing at the time. So I was going to Australia eight times a year. I was technically here. <laughs> Let's talk about that the zen of surfing and what that really means and symbolically as it ties into the book. And originally you started the academic process of not writing a book necessarily, but really kind of standing back and looking at how was the conversation with your professors or your lead dean of the school that you were working with in the PhD when you presented this? What was that moment like? Yeah, I did get some good advice again, and probably from my father, my mother, and a little bit even from my prof. And you go into, and this is, I guess, common with PhD students, and they have this really great idea. And it's huge, and you know, it's going to change the world, and all these great things that you think it's going to do. And the reality of your doctorate is this thing needs to be incredibly myopic. It needs to be very specific and very tight. It needs to be bulletproofed, right? So if you're trying to do too much and you can't defend everything very specifically, you don't get it. So the advice at the end of the day was, Traditional academics would probably hate me for saying this, but it's, hey, get your PhD, do what you need to do to get your PhD and change the world after. And I was flirting with the idea, but hadn't committed to it was, okay, that's a good point. Let me get this. I focused on, you know, global executives, right? Only at the executive level and global organizations, right? Heavily in consulting firms. So that's great, but it applied to so much more than that. And then that was when I finished that and I augmented more of the research with what's going on in the world right now and what are we seeing, you know, about these these mega trends of disruption and all this kind of stuff we have coming down the pipe. You know, a lot of this we're dealing with now in our personal day lives or the CEO of a company or the manager of a division within a company. And I think that was the important takeaway for me. And I wanted to build that into a book, but I wanted to make it digestible. I don't want it to be an academic read. I don't want it to be boring, right? So I found that the parallels of surfing and life was really perfect. I had created in my dissertation, my PhD, I'd created this theoretical framework that is nauseatingly boring just hearing myself say it. So that's not going to sell a lot of books. One, two, it might, you know, might turn off some people. And the reality I found that it had three pillars essentially. And we have this this complexity in our life. And 
that's the world we live in. And we can think of that like waves, right? And, you know, we're now in this fourth industrial revolution and we've got lots of different technologies and sciences that are colliding and augmenting each other. And we no longer live in this straightforward linear world, but this complexity in your life is one piece of it, you know, the environment we're in, and it can be the macro or micro environment. They kind of interact the same, but the specific part of complexity is what I looked at in the complexity sciences. And it's where we kind of learn to adapt. It's where innovation occurs, right? So you have the space between your functional and abstract system. And obviously the book explains and unpacks this in a bit more detail, but we're trained to move back to this structural system, right? We don't want uncertainty. We, we don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to be out of control. And this abstract system is where we, you know, where kids kind of dream and they're crazy and they have all these things. And what's really, and you feel it in organizations and all kinds of systems and complexity sciences, you feel this as pressure and it's where the two systems are in tension. And now that we know how to identify these, that's actually a very valuable place to be. It's a leader's job actually to keep his organization out of equilibrium in this tension but it's a constant dance right if you go too much so it's very much like the barrel of a wave the ultimate move in surfing is to get into that barrel but you go too deep and you get chewed up and spit out the other end right and if you don't and you jump the gun too early you don't quite ever get there one day on a beach in queensland eric watched a young woman riding a wave and he was mesmerized he was in the middle of his dissertation and at the same time still learning to surf her mastery of whatever the waves try to throw at her would have a profound impact on him. Improvisation, our ability to adapt to our surroundings, was the key to what he was trying to say. This girl had this incredible calm and confidence to her, and she was just so relaxed. And like a set which I thought would have been the best set of the day came in, I would have, you know, dreamed for, to be in her position. And she just kind of had it all. She didn't even balk at it, she didn't care. It passed her. And then out of nowhere, she suddenly becomes 180, like dialed in. She's she's doing everything right. Like everything was this precision and perfection. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this like monster wave emerges. And this lady just, honestly, she just puts on this masterclass and finishes this ride. And it's, it's, it's this perfect comparison where it was this tranquil slow and then we had this build and she right and she knew when she knew when to lock in and when to dial it in and when to go after it and she went right right deep into the barrel and then there's this almost you know if you've ever been in the eye of a storm it's like everything goes quiet and you just you're waiting you're like is she spitting out the back is she alive where is she has she come out the other side of the wave and you know and then it's like then she kind of explodes out the end and you have all this energy again and then it kind of slows down as she kind of carves her way through the waves and has her own way and and, you know, for her, and then she just got back and did it again. And that's really what put it all together for me. Because to your point, I explained that kind of complexity in our life. But the one thing we can control is us, right? Our ability to improvise. We're the surfer. We're like this lady as these waves kind of of change come. And the change is large technological change, but it's also driving all kinds of other change, right? Systematic change and ecological crisis and all these kind of things. So that was the second part is the improvisational theory and improvisational kind of leadership and decision making is very much there. So I, I built that in to the framework as well. And the part that I really felt was missing in academia was these are two very academic things. But in the real world, if what you do in theory is right, but it doesn't work out in the real world, it's still wrong, right? Or if what you think is right is not wrong. So this rationality, this this foundation, and, and again, watching this this surfer kind of put it all together for me, right? And I use that as your surfboard. So you've got your waves, which is the complexity in life. You have the improviser, which is us, the surfer. 
none of that works unless you're using a surfboard. So you need a rational foundation. And the rationality part makes sure that your beliefs and what you're thinking and what you're doing, they have to map back to the reality of the world, right? You don't have to believe in basic things like gravity, but it doesn't matter. You're not entitled to your own opinion. If you jump off the roof, you're going to hit the ground and blow up. So you can improvise and use complexity sciences and use all the proper improvisational steps. But if you're basing it on the fact that you don't believe in gravity and you're jumping out of a plane without a parachute, we have a big problem. So it's really the three of these that combined and at the center of this framework is where we see our actions and decisions and unconscious, almost rational improvisation. And that's also where we happen to see disruption, right? Where innovation occurs and all this stuff. What about disruption related to something like climate change? Yeah, I think it's like everything. Our world is so complex now, right? This inner, this this complexity of the cosmos and these lunar tidal patterns, that actually affects surfing. And if you understand that, then you understand how waves can break. And after that, it's really just real-time computational buoyancy, surface tension, counting your math shape, hydrodynamic force. If you just do that all in real time, you're a surfer. And I think the point of the book is no good surfers do all that in real time. But they do have a general understanding, right? And so I think a lot of the debates to what you're saying is, People want exact predictions. They want to know exactly when this is going to happen, ecological, or when this, you know, tell me exactly when this fire is going to break out. Or, and I, I think more importantly is some people have been noticing the change and putting their arms up. And honestly, a large part of the people either ignore it because they don't want to think about it, it's not convenient, or for whatever reason, don't notice the change and don't seem to want to do it. But I think that's a perfect example of what we do here and the world has taken great steps, right? Paris Climate Accord and, and some of these things, which again, people get really touchy on, well, we're giving more money than they are. Look, it's not about that. What we're doing here is we're making a pact to fix a problem. And the problem is we've got this ecological crisis and you know, it opens up a lot of bigger can of worms is we tend to be very reactive because in the past we've been able to do that. But on exponential problems, you can't be reactive. If we had these goals where we wanted to reduce our carbon footprint or emissions by 2030 to a certain point, it might make it impossible for us to also hit our goals of 2050. So unless we're taking both a short and long-term kind of pragmatic view and approach to some of these problems and we're thinking through them and doing them collectively, and I'm not a pessimist or you know an optimist, on it. So what I'm going to paint both sides, what excites me a little bit is when you look into the impossible problems of today, what they're going to look like tomorrow, the future generations are going to fix impossible problems today with ease, right? And I think the mega trends that we have coming, right? We've got these material sciences and this nano and this biotech, and you know, we hear all the blockchain buzzwords and you've got AI, but you know, these things are all kind of smashing into each other and you can't decouple them. They're out of control. What I think is amazing is they're going to we can use them to solve seemingly incredible problems. Now, what we're not doing is we're not thinking through how we're developing these things. And we always start out for the good. And if I could make stem cell lab-grown meat that is undifferentiable from another meat, but you know we can get 25% of our grazing population back, we'd have a step change difference in an ecological crisis right there, right? We'd have reforestation, we'd have carbon emission gases going down. But I don't know, like people want that black and white answer of what we need to do but it's it's that kind of mindset as we do these things if if we're thinking through how we're doing them versus just if they're all happening different ways we have this inability of fixing to upgrading so let's talk about your definition of disruption itself what is your definition of disruption I'm going to get theoretical, but not too theoretical. So there are essentially three forms of disruption, right? We have sustainable disruption. We have low-end disruption. We have new market disruption. And the 30-second recap is 
sustainable innovation or sustainable disruption is the iPhone 6 is going to come out and there's going to be an iPhone 7 and an iPhone 8. And this is sustainable disruption, right? They are making their product better, but there's nothing kind of earth shattering in there. You know, we have low end disruption. And that's what you see when people come in from the bottom of the market with a product that maybe isn't quite good enough yet. But as it builds on a very different foundation, it eventually catches up. And what we end up seeing is, I think a good example of this, because it's not fully a new market disruption, could be streaming in general, right? So Blockbuster could have got into streaming, but it's a very crappy kind of low-end service. And they've got these HD DVDs, which are higher margin. And then, you know, as Netflix kind of gets better and has a different distribution model, they keep moving up chain. And the problem with Blockbuster is they couldn't keep moving up chain though. So we see it in like, you know, steel and cement making. The low-end stuff, the big guys don't get into because there's no margins in it. The low-end companies start to get better. They move up market. The up market guys kind of keep moving up. And we see that traditional kind of disruption through business as organizations grow and they become, you know, higher, higher margin, higher revenue. That is what they teach you in your MBA. But then we have this new market disruption. And I think new market disruption is, is what interests me. And it's where I focus the attention. And that is where you actually suck customers out of a market. So Kodak's a great example. Kodak did not lose to competition. They didn't lose to other phone man, uh, camera manufacturers. They didn't lose anything. They lost to the smartphone market, right? An entirely new market appeared and suddenly started to suck out all of Kodak's customers, right? And they had a chance to see these things coming, right? But they couldn't give up their higher margins. They couldn't give up all the things you do in your MBA, market share, all this stuff. Well, market share of a market that's about to disappear or collapse doesn't really matter, right? Like VHS lost the DVD, you know, but at the end, streaming that killed off kind of the the hardware dvd and once again if you're making dvd players you're not losing to other dvd players you're losing to netflix you're losing to no one needs a dvd player anymore so the evolution of the thesis and becoming a book i don't know very many people that successfully have done that i have my master's that was enough of a challenge for me but i know people who have done their phds and it literally is it's a very exhausting process so How cathartic was that for you to think it's going to be a book? And did you think that immediately? And what was the writing process that you took? Yeah, I had it in the back of my head. I always thought, and I I was asking people how they turn their dissertation into a book. And I, a lot of people, to your point, maybe have done it, but it tends to be very specific, right? But yes, so actually had one of uh, one of the profs who wasn't on my committee or the board or anything who attended my dissertation kind of replanted the seed in my head. Hey, you know, have you ever thought about writing a book? And so I I was thinking about it. And again, we talked about it a bit earlier. I don't know. I'm not an author. I've never written a book, right? Like English wasn't, wasn't my major. And, you know, I think I, I think I, I fought with that a little bit. And, and then I started kind of really going back in and researching the world we live in now, right? This kind of fourth industrial revolution where we're deep into right now and what that looks like. And I wanted to make sure, again, I could map back everything and apply it to kind of real world application. And and you can, it flexes up and down. It can be at an organization or, or at your own personal level and, you know, your dilemmas in your house. But I did that. And then it was, uh, it was a fun exercise and people don't talk about this much, but you end up writing like eight books worth of stuff and you only really take very little and my book has as we were talking about it has the world's longest epilogue in it as well so i think it was it was a great exercise for me specifically because you know and my my editor was great he was very good at 
telling me and sitting me down and saying, okay, great. So I, I, I got this part. I like this, you know, this is, you're writing a book now, Eric, like we're having a beer, we're talking about it. This is great. And I don't know what happens here, but you start lecturing me right for the next 40 pages. And I'm sitting here saying, well, what are you talking about? This is gold. This is exactly it. And I was stuck going when I talked about theoretical things, right. To get very much into an academic mindset where I'm explaining something and I'm giving eight different supporting statements and clauses and research. And he's like, look, Eric, you're the expert. Tell me, like, give me one or two references here or sources or something. And I'm, you know, we're good to go. So I actually had a bit more fun because I could put much more real world examples of where we're seeing this happen, right? Instead of very specific, you can't give a great everyday example in, in your dissertation because it needs to be specific to an individual in that environment, experiencing this at the same time, all that kind of stuff. So I mean, I listed them all at the back. There's, about, there's under 800, but they're all in there for each kind of section in terms of the research or, or the articles I pulled from or kind of all that fun stuff. But it was kind of a really fun exercise for me, I think, to go through and, and do that. And then, you know, more rewrites than I would have ever dreamed I would have done in, in a million years. So what do we need to do as individuals to just be more aware of our surroundings and knowing when the surf is going to change and how can we be better at shielding ourselves? I guess? Yeah. And I think the first part is, is awareness and conscious taking a, a proactive mindset approach to it. Right. So we, we understand these things. And if we can look for these certain pressure points in our life, which we understand, you know, through complexity sciences, if we understand when we're in it, how we want to act properly and if we're keeping a very rational mindset, and that's the beautiful part about being a human being, and it's why we're the dominant species in the world, is we have the ability to think about thinking. So we have errors in our mental architecture, right? We, we understand bias, but we can actually go one deeper than that. And we don't always question the deeper levels. We don't question our beliefs. In all of societies across you know the thousands of years humanity's been here for the most part it's been more important to just believe what everyone believes as a group than actually believe what's right it's more important to fit in and that's in earlier cultures that was key to, to survive but now we're moving you know if you compare now to you know a century or two ago we were experiencing like 100 years of change or in disruption i think in like a year so these ones where we evolved over thousands of years, we've got to stop ourselves and think about how we can recorrect that. And again, we don't have the ability, right, to stop between healing and fixing and upgrading humans. And if we're not having a conversation, some of these things are just going to be here tomorrow, just like Alexa is in our house. And that's the drive. These conversations make people uncomfortable. And for the most part, people just, you don't talk about it. You know what I mean? I think the joke is, you know, it's this, it's this, Children act the same way, right? What is it when, right, when a killer doesn't get what he wants, he just cries and screams or, you know, looks away. Well, we kind of have to stop acting like children now. We're all grown ups, and we've got to start to think through and talk about these things that make us very, very uncomfortable. So what keeps you up? Things that in terms of disruptive things that are really top of mind, we talked about some, but what are things that you just continuously, you stand back and you look at differently? It's like, geez, What's it going to be like in 10 years? You know, is it going to be better or worse or what's coming next? Yeah, I definitely flip back and forth <laughs> on my view of that. I do think we live in a way in the most incredible time in the world. I think we're literally going to solve, you know, we're going to remove incredible things, right? Like, you know, you know, cancer or Parkinson's or things that we used to suffer so much for. I think what really keeps me up at night is, 
we don't seem to be noticing this change and it is going to solve incredible things. And for the most part, most of it, I know that AI and the doom and gloom and robots are going to take over the world is what Hollywood sells. But most of what we're doing starts out for the good of the world, right? Or for fixing. And I love that. So is the industrial fourth wave part of the disruption or is there going to be a industrial fifth wave as a result of the destruction? Yeah, I think the fifth, you get into, you know, the theoretical futurists at that point. There's no like coming, going really parties, I guess. We, you know, we saw the machine production, which was our first industrial revolution, creation of steam engines. This led us to locomotives. We created these distribution networks. People were fed better. They lived longer. They got food. It was all great. The second industrial revolution kind of ushered in the age of science, mass production, right? We got Model T cars, but we also understood infectious diseases. And suddenly, you know, we started washing our hands between the morgue and delivering babies and people lived longer, less infant birth rates. We had this third industrial revolution, which kind of appeared in the 90s, and it brought us semiconductors and mainframe computers, which seems a bit disconnected, but that led to computers and, you know, smartphones and the internet. And now we're suddenly, the world's been flattened and vastly changed. And Fear motivated a lot of this, this change for us. We don't think about it that way, right? But the original ones were starvation and then it was maybe war and then it was disease. And now we've, you know, we have governments that are still trying to rule through this old school mentality and creating a bit of the fake fears. But this this fourth industrial revolution we're facing, I don't know, we entered it within the last five years-ish or so. And I think it really is the most exciting time in human history because I really do believe we will achieve impossible feats. But with more rewards come more risk. I think ultimately that we're going to face some of these absolute crazy waves. And, you know, we know they're coming. We don't know exactly, you know, in what order. But this era kind of technological advancement is fundamentally different than anything we've experienced in previous human history. So it's kind of not fair to extrapolate that. You know, it's coming faster than any of us think. What are your thoughts on the space race? Yeah, I mean, the space race is real. And I think with that comes a whole bunch of other kind of questions, right? I think if you told someone there's a race for Mars 10 years ago, they probably would have laughed at you. Now, you know, we've got these billionaires going there for fun and, you know, should they or shouldn't they be and who's getting the funding? And I'm, I'm pretty sure I just saw Bezos Blue Origin is suing Musk's SpaceX because he's getting favored treatment or something. But my point is these races where we do these incredible things, as you go through, you know, as it becomes digitized, there's this deceptive phase, which we're in right now, the disruption hits, then it's dematerialized, democratized, and all of a sudden we all have it. And it's happening at a quicker and faster pace. So I think we're experiencing this, these these rogue waves and people just see it as like, ah, eh, race for space. But this is a full on like hyper mode of complex disruption that is has all these and disruption in space, what people don't connect with, right, is this explosion and amplification of all these advancements that's just the start of this exponential disruption, which guess what? It obliterates present day disruption, right? Through 3D printing, right? Or transportation and finance, real estate, education, advertising, you name it, food, health, manufacturing. Now all of a sudden we can track real time as long as I have my phone in my pocket and then an Apple watch on my wrist. I never have to go to the doctors because they're tracking me real time and doctors can spend their time, you know, checking in on sick people versus healthy people. But am I okay with that? Who has the rights to my data? Who's actually, what are they doing with my data? It just opens so many conversations and words. And that's the, the part of that really keeps me up is we've got this great change, but we're not really talking about it all that much. And it's going to be here. And if we don't, if we're not all okay with this, we got to start talking about it now. And it's not all developers and, or it's not academic or theorist. It's, it's you, me, and anyone else who has a view on that. Yeah, it's like we have to collectively look at it. I guess the cool thing is we all bring 
different knowledge base and perspective. Yeah. <laughs> and if you think about it in too much detail, it's that, right? It's almost exhausting. But, you know, for our foreseeable future, we are surfing. We can't decouple these ideas. They're too interconnected. We can't say just hold off on AI because, you know, the next advancement of AI won't come from AI. It'll come from some, could be neural, it could be scientific, could be, you know, straight neurology discovery that really unlocks the next thing that Kurzweil is going to use to reverse engineering your brain. And now we have whole brain emulation and, you know, we're at a whole different can of worms. But for the foreseeable future, I think the reality is we are surfing. We're going to want to make sure we can position ourselves and understand enough of the surf so that, you know, we're not in the impact zone and we don't get crushed by tidal waves. But at the same time, we're going to have to push ourselves into uncomfortable spaces. And that's what the barrel, when you're in, you're getting barreled in a wave, that's what it is. It's it's equally exciting and frightening. It's the fear of knowing, you know, the wrong move wipes you out. But if analysis by paralysis, if you do that, you're done. So you've got to stay fluid and you've got to improvise. And you've got to make sure it's mapping back to the world. And when you do that and when we win, it's great. It's the biggest rush you can get. It's what keeps kind of us coming back. And we are not going to stop chasing some of these goals, right? Happiness, death, unfortunately, is a disease. We all die. So we're going to keep prolonging that and chasing that as much as we can, whether we like it or not. And that means we've been able to figure out every problem to date so far. So, and again, that's more of what I would call like a theoretical goal futurist but unless we hit some form of complexity right or we go entirely into chaos at which point complexity collapses and, and everything becomes different it's going to be very different but either way on the way there we're going to address things like what we're doing with displacing large amounts of the workforce who now have working lives that are much longer there's going to be so much to discuss and you know i think if we're up for the challenge i think we're going to solve incredible things through wind and solar and, you know, a lot of health and nutrition advancements that will help with the ecological crisis. And I think if we put our, ourselves together and we start thinking of us humans as a team versus us not against that country, not against that country, ultimately, we're going to be able to solve incredible things. So, yes, I think for the foreseeable future, we're surfing, but I think it's everyone gets to surf where they want to surf. We've got big wave surfers and they hate little waves. And we've got little wave guys who can rip through barrels like no one's business, but they don't surf big waves. And I think that's okay, just as long as whether we like it or not, these waves are coming. That was Eric Pillon Bignall. Eric was only 35 when his father died unexpectedly from a stroke. That experience put Eric on something of a parallel track between his academic and his consulting work and a new interest in brain-related illnesses. Eric founded Project 7, an initiative launched to raise awareness and money for brain research. Always the thrill seeker, Eric will climb the highest mountain on each of the seven continents and give all proceeds from donors and sponsors to the American Brain Foundation and Brain Canada. Eric also says he's already playing with some themes for his next book project. I personally can't wait to see what Eric is about to conquer next. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood, and all episodes are written and developed by Jack Buer. Our show coordinator is Deanna Morency, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Labs.